We are continuing our sermon today, our series, Boldly Proclaiming the Word of Christ. Something we need to do. We need to do it better. The world is certainly trying to shout us down, telling us to be quiet when we have the answer. We have the way, and we need to proclaim that. We're in Acts chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning, if you'll follow along with me. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against those of the Aramaic-speaking community because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. One of the reasons we're looking at the book of Acts is because Acts gives us the growth of the church. This was different. This was a change. Jesus established his church when he was on earth and, and formed it when he said to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And so it was a new thing, and it had to be, uh, it had to be invented in a sense. Jesus gave the principles, we had his principles, we had his guiding, but how to actually do that day to day was something new. And so we're studying Acts to see how that occurred. And it's very fascinating. If you are a history person, you should book Acts because it is, uh, it is following through the growth of the church and the history of the church. We're here in chapter six, it's a very, very important uh, chapters in the Bible. And one of the changes that occurred there in the first century AD, and specifically as recorded in Acts chapter 1, is the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel shifted from the Israelites to the Gentiles, or another way from the Jews to the Christians. To proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ is the most effective if the one proclaiming is a believer. You need to believe what you're selling. Okay, you need to believe what you're doing. You need to believe what you're talking about for it to be effective. And so a follower of Jesus believing him to be the Messiah, the one who came to be redeemed, uh, men from their sin nature, the one who paid the man's penalty of death for their sin. We, we read it in that verse, the second verse 21 of our gospel moment. He, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.21, yeah, God made him who had no sin. Jesus didn't know what sin was. He knew cognitively, but he didn't know it experientially. He didn't sin. He didn't know that guilt. He didn't know the need for repentance. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. The whole Old Testament was God teaching people they needed to be righteous, which meant doing the things of God. He explained that to them. He gave them examples. He gave them encouragement. It was never meant to save them, but it, they were to try to attain to that righteousness. Jesus Christ came to be our righteousness. Through faith in Him, we become righteous before God. And that's what's so powerful about that verse. There were converts among the Jews to Christianity. The 12 disciples, for example, were Jews that became uh, Christians who followed Christ. But the Jews as a nation, as a whole, rejected Jesus as Messiah. They're still looking for the Messiah to come to this world. So that being the case, Jesus transferred the task of telling the world about Jesus Christ to those Gentiles and Jews who had accepted Jesus' atonement for their sin. And that's you. You are a Gentile. You are one of the ones that was passed to. So this book of Acts is that history of the beginning of the church and as such is a model for us for how the church should be. Obviously it is necessary to make some adjustments. 2,000 years later uh, we have things that they didn't have to think about. They didn't have smartphones, computers, they didn't have cars, they didn't have satellite TV, they didn't have cable. What they had was their own little world. And so there are adjustments that have to be made in, in how to serve God and addressing the new needs, but that doesn't change the gospel or message of God and those principles stayed same. And so we don't want to abandon those early principles, but use them to guide churches today. There are a few details in this passage that I want to take note of before we move on, specifically looking at, at Stephen. It says the church was experiencing rapid growth. And in this case, they had a problem come up between the Grecian Jews, the ones who lived in that part of the world. Hellenistic may be what your translation says. That's another word for the Grecian culture. And the Hebraic Jews, those who were in Jerusalem who came up in that. And the disciples were trying to feed people. They were trying to take care of day-to-day -day needs and people were falling through the cracks. And like people do, the, the Grecian Jews, the Hellenistic Jews felt like they were being overlooked. And I'm sure there was some sense of rivalry or jealousy or they thought some favoritism. Don't know that it existed, but they interpreted it that way. And so the disciples said, we got to fix this problem. The gospel was shared with all, but since the work originated in Jerusalem, the gospel was primarily preached to the Jews at this point. Later in Acts, we read of God expanding the proclamation of the gospel into Europe and to non-Jewish people. And so they do have this problem. Some of the things we're told in chapter 6, starting at verse 1, is the number of the disciples was increasing. We had, we had read reports about 1,000 being saved in that day. And what a wonderful revival that would be. They didn't have this, they didn't have a building as big as us. They didn't have a big as a building in the southeast down on Blake and Baker Parkway. They had homes. They would meet in the temple courts and wherever they could. But 5,000 coming to the Lord, how we'd love to see that today. 
And there were the Jews from the Greek or Hellenistic culture and the Israelite or Hebraic culture. The church was engaged providing food to the widows, trying to care for them, trying to meet those needs. They were preaching the gospel, but they realized people had practical needs that needed to be met, and they were trying to do that. And as I said, the Grecian or Hellenistic widows felt they were being left out. So it caused a problem in the church. There was, there was strife building. There was a sense of favoritism, and it could have uh, squashed what was happening in the church. It could have caused people to decide to leave, uh, to abandon it, so that the, the disciples had to address this. Early elders of the church were those 12 disciples that followed and walked with Jesus Christ. They're the 12 that were mentioned in chapter 2. They were the 12 disciples called by Jesus to follow him, minus Judas. And then they elected Matthias to be the 12th one, filling out the 11 again to complete the group of 12. In verse 6, it we're introduced to the title of apostle. An apostle is a disciple who had been with and followed Jesus. So they were disciples, but they were a subgroup of disciples. And that can be a source of confusion because we talk about the 12 disciples, and they were, but anyone who follows Jesus Christ is a disciple. And in Matthew chapter 28, uh, those verses 19 through 20, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. He said, Go ye therefore into all nations, making disciples. So that was making followers is, is simply what it was at that point. It didn't mean any particular position, any particular responsibility. It was just someone who was following after Jesus and hadn't necessarily made a decision to accept him as Messiah. That's why it goes on. Making them disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them all these things. So a disciple is first one who starts listening to and following Jesus Christ. These 12 disciples were specific ones chosen by Jesus who walked with him, and later we gave them the name, they were given the name Apostle, being one who is personally knew Jesus, walked with him, and served with him. Paul later considered himself an apostle because Jesus Christ himself met him on the road to Damascus. And so that was his claim about being an apostle. People argued with him about it, but he, he stayed firm to that because he had had that personal uh, encounter with Jesus Christ. So the demands of feeding the widows, and there are other tasks I'm sure that went on, was keeping these apostles from study, preparation, and preaching. And we need to understand they didn't come to the people because they felt they were above the task. They weren't, they weren't unwilling to serve others. They didn't not care about other people. They did, but they had a special calling of God to deliver His Word, to preach it to the people, and to draw them to Christ. The other disciples had not walked with God that long, were fresh. They did not have the knowledge and information. So these apostles' specific task as elders of the church and as leaders in the church 
was to proclaim the gospel, and they needed to prepare. They needed to be ready to do that. They needed to be preaching. And doing this task of distributing the food was limiting their time. We worship a God who's all-powerful. We worship a God who's all-present and who knows everything, but we're finite. We get tired. We're only in one place at a time. And so these apostles felt like they were, uh, they were not able to focus on preaching the Word of God because of this task. Again, not because they were unwilling, but just because no one else could do what they could do. And so to resolve this problem, they called all the disciples together. I guess it's our first business meeting in the Bible. And this group of 12 had a suggestion. They said, hey, let's get some other men that you know to be of good report, who have followed Christ, who are living for Him, who had a good reputation among the people. Let's let them take care of this task so that no one is uh, left out, so that no one misses their food, misses their meal, so that no one feels abandoned, and we can devote ourselves to preaching and preparation of the Word. And it tells us that the people liked what they heard and agreed to do that, and they chose this, the ones I had read off to you earlier. So having agreed on that course, what do we see? They had a problem. It's interesting that growth causes problems. It causes change. It's new people. It's new needs. And so they had to address that. But when they did successfully, God's Word tells us that they, in, they in, continued to increase their numbers daily. So they were able to meet that need. They were able to help people. And so the church continued to grow and to grow. As we go into chapter 6 and 7 more, it starts focusing on Stephen. Stephen was one who was particularly described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. People recognized in him that he had a heart devoted to Jesus Christ, that he was learning and growing and ministering. Well, things were going good in the church. They were growing. They were picking up people. They were meeting needs. They were helping the widows. Uh, uh, Jesus said, uh, the Bible tells us that greater uh, to care for orphans and widows in their distress is one of the highest callings we can have. And so they were doing this. The church was doing great, growing, but not everybody was happy. There was a group there in Jerusalem called the Synagogue of Freedmen, and they brought accusations against Stephen. And they, they tried to debate with Stephen. They tried to talk with him, but they, they couldn't do it successfully. He knew the Scriptures too well. He knew what God was saying too well, that they could not refute what he said. So what do you do when that's the case? Well, if you're against somebody, you make up stories. You create lies. So they started lying about Stephen. They said, Stephen's saying blasphemous things. And they related to one in particular is when Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll build it back in three days. Any of us know, and, and the astute person at that time knew, he was talking about his body, not the actual physical temple. But that temple was sacred to them. So when you said something like that, they, they would title it as blasphemy. And that's what they did with Stephen. They said, he's being blasphemous. And they hauled him into the court, the Sanhedrin court, the, 
leader of the Jewish people. He had to stay a night in jail. The next day they brought him out to answer these charges. And so Stephen is standing before the, the most powerful leaders of his day, the ones who had uh, control over his destiny, over his life and death, literally. And what does Stephen do? He doesn't shrink back. He starts on a powerful sermon, recounting basically the history of the Israelites from the time God called them out of Egypt. And he recounts to them how time and again they had rejected the message of God, how they had killed his prophets. And then he goes on to Jesus and he talks about the events that they knew very well. They had happened not long ago. They were all there. They may have sat on the tribunal that condemned Jesus to the cross and, and, and pled the Romans to do that. And Stephen stands before them and says, you're a murderer. You murdered an instant, innocent man. They again, they had no argument. They couldn't refute him. It was, it was fact. People in the whole city knew the story. And so they had a problem. His words would prick them to the core. But they didn't become repentant. They didn't say, oh, Stephen, you've shown us the light. Verse 57 and 58 of Acts 7 says, At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. A typical reaction when people are confronted with the truth, but they're unwilling to lay aside what they want to hold on to, in this case power and leadership. They weren't really concerned about God being uh, blasphemed. They were concerned about their not being exalted anymore. They were concerned about losing their place. If they had a heart for God, then this message of Stephen would have pricked them to their core, and they would have repented and turned from their wicked ways. They would have accepted Christ as Messiah, but instead they stoned him. People will respond to the gospel in a number of ways. For some, there's a genuine need, a realization of their forgiveness. It touches their heart, and they're brought to tears and sorrow and repentance. And they willingly and gladly accept Jesus as Savior, confessing their sins, repenting, and following in baptism. That baptism being that symbol of having accepted Christ as Savior and being a, a, a testimony of being part of the fellowship of Christians. Some don't deny what they're being told. Some don't argue. They're just doubtful. We, we call some of them agnostics, which means they doubt the existence of God. They're not denying God exists. They just want to doubt it. Or they may realize their need for salvation but they're just unwilling to repent. They want to do what they want to do. And so they just kind of dismiss it and go on and do their own thing. And then like the Sanhedrins, we have a third group that react angrily and reject what they're being told. But we mustn't think they didn't hear the word. You see, one of the ways we can spot conviction of the Holy Spirit is when somebody reacts angrily, when they 
fight back, when they argue, it can mean that the Holy Spirit is saying, this is true for you. And they're doing what Jesus said Paul did, kicking against the pricks. That truth is pricking at their heels, but they don't like it. And so they argue against it. They become angry or they make false accusations like they did with Stephen. The Sanhedrin reacted against Stephen not because he was making up tall tales, not because he wasn't telling the truth, but because they couldn't refute the truth. And they knew it was true that they had killed Jesus Christ, that they had issued his if you remember, the Roman leader said, I find no fault with this man. He could, there's no reason for him. But they said, no, crucify him and we'll take a criminal, Barabbas. They knew this and they were part of it. And so they act the only way they know, in anger. And sometimes some are not openly, but you can see it in their faces and their demeanor. Sometimes as a pastor, as, as I preach the word, I look out and I see your faces. And I, I see some that seem to be intense and struggling. I don't know if it's anger or if they're just thinking hard or listening hard, so I don't make a judgment. But it can be for some that they're under conviction with the truth of God. But that's a good thing, ultimately. The two groups that are most likely to accept Jesus are the ones who feel sorrow and repentance and the ones who react angrily. Interesting. Jesus addressed this situation in Revelation 3.16 with a familiar verse, you know, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You see, a, a lukewarm person, a person that doesn't really care, a person that isn't interested, is the hardest to win over because they're not thinking about it. They're not concerned with it. A person who has a tender heart who hears the truth, that's easy. But the person who is angry and resisting the truth, it's working on them. They know the truth. They're just fighting against it. And so it shouldn't dissuade us from praying for them. It shouldn't make us write them off because they're dealing with the truth, the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Those are the two groups. So friends, don't be a lukewarm Christian. I know when I get a cup of coffee and it's sat for a little bit and it's getting kind of kind of cool, I don't want I want to spit that out of my mouth. I want it hot. I don't like cold coffee. I like hot coffee. But, but that lukewarmness, we understand. There's a phrase that I've shared with you before by Thomas Elmore. It says you can't steer a parked car. If you're moving, you can move that car in, in any direction. But if it's sitting stationary, you can't do anything with it. And so Christians, be hot or cold, because God can do something with that, but be hot. Hebrews 12, 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. We need to be on fire for Jesus Christ. Shared with you a couple of weeks ago uh, out of the passage of Corinthians that in that end times, our works will be submitted to holy fire to see if it's gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. It's not a salvation It's a reward question. So how do we do that? How do we be consumed by God's fire? 
How do we apply the message of this text to our lives today? And the answer to that is to do what Stephen did. What, you said? I'm supposed to get stoned? And no, that's not the point. That's not what I'm saying. Stephen, what Stephen did is that he did what God wanted him to do. He was placed having loved God. He was found to be a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He was called into a leadership position, and that leadership position placed him before the high council in Jerusalem, giving him an opportunity to share the gospel with them. They weren't coming to a Christian church. <laughs> they weren't looking to hear the word. So God got Stephen in front of them so he could tell them what God needed them to know. Yes, for Stephen, it resulted in his being stoning, but he received a special blessing right before he died. God opened up the heavens and let him see where he was going. I bet we'd all like that like just a glimpse of heaven to know. Stephen got that. Then he gave up his breath. And I have no doubt Jesus was standing there waiting for him, saying, well done. Now enter into thy rest. So we do as Stephen did, but not the exact thing. We obey what God says for us to do. How many we have here today, close to 50, God probably has 50 different things for us to do. We're unique individuals with unique talents, with unique characteristics, with the unique levels of understanding of God. And God works with us individually. He knows what we're capable of. He knows where we need stretching. And he gives us something in that arena. Stephen didn't shrink back from his task rather he obeyed God. So we need to do what God tells us to do. I need to do what God gives me to do. And it's important, if it's important for you to please your Lord, you need to do what God gives you to do. How do you hear from God? He spent thousands of years putting this together through a bunch of different people disparate people, and it all comes together in one story because it's his story. It's God's story, and it's what he wants you to know about him. It's what he wants you to know about how to live. So that's the start. Spend time in his word. Spend more time in his word. I know some of you have read it all your lives. You may have read through it several times. There's more there. Don't stop. So we read his word. And he's given you more in his word than any of us can accomplish in this lifestyle. We should, we, we, we might better be smart and not say, Lord, what do you want me to do? He says, right there it is, and you'll be busy till I call you home. But he does work with us uniquely. And not everything in here is exactly what you need to do. When you read the story of Stephen, it's not that you're supposed to be stoned for him. When you read the story of Peter, it's not that your life is going to end up upside down on a cross. But you do what he's called you to do. So read his word. Let him talk to you. 
Then talk to him in prayer. Come to that place where you say, Lord, I want to know you more. I want to follow you closer. I want to go where you lead me. Forgive me for being stuck on me, Lord, and show me what you want me to do. And it may not be some massive task. It, uh, we, some people I know have testified they're worried about being called as a missionary and sent to a farm field. Heaven help me if I had to go to Southeast Asia. I just don't care for Oriental food. I'd starve. Might not be a bad thing, but I'd starve. Thank goodness when I went to Africa, I found a KFC and uh, pizza places, all that kind of stuff. But that's, that's a fear that we have. And God may call some of you as a missionary when he knows you're ready, when he knows you're able and willing. But God may say, I'm going to start to meddling now. He may say, open up that wall a little more. Give back to me a little more of what you're doing. Honor me a little more with your gifts. It may be that you ask him something as you're sitting there, you don't hear a thing. And you think, well, God, you're not even listening. But then the next day at work, somebody starts talking about a problem they've got. And you've got an opportunity to say, you know, I'm a person of faith. And I don't want to impose, but I'd, I'd be happy to pray for you. Most times they'll say, I'd appreciate that. When you go out to eat today, wherever you are, I challenge you, ask that waiter, that waitress, is there something I could pray for you? Something that you could use in prayer? A lot of times they'll tell you yes, and I've known them to say no, and then come back and say, oh, by the way, there is something. People appreciate praying for them. Whatever it is, it may be that he says, you don't need that double quarter pounder with cheese, fries, Coke, and a milkshake, 3,000 calories for $10, $12. Eat a banana and give that to the Lord. The point is that you listen to him to see the next step he wants you to take. If you've watched our live stream, you know that there's a little banner we put at the bottom, typically towards the end of the sermon, that says, watch your next step, and it has a phone number. Because that's what God's looking for, your next step. Some of you have walked with him 60-plus years. Some of you are fresh. Some of you don't know him. If you don't know him, the first step is to receive this message that Jesus Christ came and died for your sins to give you eternal life. Receive Him as that Messiah, that Savior, that Lord. If you are walking with Him, praise the Lord. But He has somewhere He wants you to go. Someone He wants you to say a word to. It may not be delivering the gospel like Stephen did. It may just be saying, I'm sorry you're going through something. How can I help? And may I pray for you. That may, that sounds small, but what you're doing is calling upon an almighty God to inject himself in their life to fix a problem. That's powerful, folks, if we'll do it 
The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James. So the point here is to do like Stephen did and respond to how God is leading you. It doesn't matter what I want you to do. It doesn't matter what I think you should do or anybody else here. What matters is that you lay down at night fully at peace with your God, knowing you obeyed him. What matters is on that day that your last breath is taken and you're called to be home, that you can unashamedly approach the pearly gates, ready to see Jesus because you know you've lived for him. That's what the next step is. That's what Stephen did. That's why Stephen was a bold disciple. That's how you can be a bold disciple.